record a podcast. And so you can listen to this on the podcast or hopefully you join us. And we're going to be talking about white privilege. So Gary Huber was my first introduction to this topic at all. Um, I didn't even have an awareness. I grew up in Arizona, born in New York, grew up in Arizona, and primarily white neighborhood. And I just, I was, I didn't know. I just didn't know. And we took the class, and my mind was like blown. Um, there was parts of me who can who could completely accept what was being said. And then there was parts of me who that kind of um, had defenses, like it butt up against some of my stuff that I wasn't ready to look at and started unpacking. And you teach that uh, what year in the program? Like second? First year. First year. So it's a three-year program. He taught it the first year. I've been kind of sitting and stewing in what I've learned. And I've graduated in 2015, it's 2017, so it's taken me five years to, like, really get to a lot of the material that I think is so vitally important to look at as a white person to be able to support uh, this whole entire systemic process. And so I kind of want to start with wherever you want to start and go, go into this. Well, we can start... From right here where we're sitting. Okay. Um, and I can tell you about myself. I can tell you two stories about myself. Kind of the standard American story and then a story that adds uh, an awareness of privilege. Okay. Okay. So uh, my ancestors, here's the first story. My ancestors came from uh, the Netherlands. Huber is a Dutch name. Uh, also from Ireland and Germany, they were basically all working class people. My, my great-grandfather was a dock worker. Uh, so you can see this as a kind of bootstrap kind of story. You know, we um, uh, lived in the Buffalo, New York area. My father was a meat cutter. My neighbors, my uncles worked at the factories. Bethlehem Steel, the Chevy plant, the mm -hmm. Ford plant, um, family of seven children. So I'm the first in my extended family to go to college, get a degree, get a professional certification, become a psychotherapist. Uh, right in this very neighborhood, as I said, I did my first field placement got my first job right here in North Berkeley. I uh, worked for community mental health agencies for quite a while. Got my license in 1982, started my practice. Um, and I now am a full professor at John F. Kennedy University. And I have a pretty successful practice. Right. Sounds good, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to tell the story a second way. Um, my ancestors came from favored nations. Right? If, say, they would try to come from uh, Asia or Africa or even southern or eastern Europe, there were severe immigration restrictions 
at that time for people coming from those countries. Okay. Um, so yes, my uh, parents, my family is working class. I was actually just talking to my father about this yesterday. Um, he's still alive. He's going to be 87 this year. Aww. And uh, he's the father of seven of us. And uh, we talked about how at that time, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, I was born in the 50s, 70s, um, the U.S. had uh, a very strong industrial base. Actually, after World War II, we were basically the only industrialized country in the world. And uh, guys like my father and my uncles could join the union. But pretty much only white people could join the union, and only men. Mm -hmm. um, so they were able to get good union jobs in the factories or my father in the supermarket, the meat department, uh, which paid a living wage where one guy could support a family of nine people. Right. Okay? Not right. so possible anymore. Mm -mm. Um, that was made possible by the fact that he was white and a, a man and therefore was accepted into the union, whereas people of color uh, were either not allowed in the unions at that time or were relegated to pretty low positions. Um, we bought a house. My grandfather actually built a house in uh, Orchard Park, New York, a suburb of Buffalo. At the time, uh, as a lot of places were in the country, there were codes and covenants restricting who that house could be sold to. That's right. right? And, of course, those codes and covenants restricted it to white people. Um, and I just want to like emphasize because this is so important to me because what I didn't realize um, when you're combated with people saying like slavery was hundreds of years ago and I mean we're talking his generation like that's ancient history like right so I mean we're we're not so far removed uh, to things that were still very segregated oh where I grew up was entirely segregated right there was uh, the sections of the city where African-American people lived and where uh, Puerto Rican people lived. And then uh, the what became the suburban areas were restricted to white people. Now, um, another factor was that uh, my father bought the house from his father. Now, people of that era, men of that era, could use the GI Bill to buy a house right. and get financing. Or financing was provided by the FHA, right. uh, and they had particular lending requirements. And the loans were made almost exclusively to suburban areas to white families, something like 98% of the loans. These were backed by the government. The uh, private banks adopted the same lending policies as the government, as the FHA uh, created, and they specifically favored loaning to neighborhoods that were all white. In fact, neighborhoods that had even one or two families of color uh, were not given loans because that was considered a bad risk. So these were government policies that basically allowed a whole generation 
of white people in post-World War II America mm -hmm. to move to the suburbs. Actually, this created the suburbs. Mm -hmm. The sub suburbs were built with largely government-backed financing that was uh, racially restricted to white people. Now, this is not this is not some conspiracy theory. This is uh, part of history that's really well known. It can be researched. Not talked about. No, but not talked about. Really hidden in plain sight. Yeah. Okay. So and wait, something I want to say that I remember, okay. and I want you to continue. But in your class, which I had no clue about, was um, people of color who served wouldn't even get the bills to buy homes. Well, right. they would, they would, no, they would qualify for the GI Bill, but they couldn't use it to buy a home uh, other than buy a home in a, uh, well, actually, they wouldn't often get approved for the mortgage because the lending requirements had to show it was a good investment. And the banking policies at the time, this was called redlining, uh, where oh, yeah, redlining. real estate was, was divided into four categories green being the best investment, red being the worst investment, according to the banks, mm -hmm. and uh, integrated neighborhoods or neighborhoods that were mostly people of color were considered at the time bad investments and therefore did not meet the lending requirements. So the GI Bill could be given to all veterans, mm -hmm. but they still couldn't use it to buy a house. Right. So even after the codes and covenants were struck down, that was sometime, believe, that was earlier, in the uh, 40s, I believe. Uh, but the redlining uh, procedures weren't, uh, weren't struck down until President Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act sometime in the uh, mid to late 60s, I can't remember the exact date. So from uh, the 40s to the 50s through most of the 60s, these were the policies that were in place. Now, if you purchased a house in the suburbs, like where was your house? Um, so in New York, our house was in Niagara Falls, Love Canal. <laughs> yeah. And that's such I, a good place. I was, I was born on the dioxin hotspot of Love Canal, so I'm a toxic, toxic baby. Um, I'm still like an ongoing study. I'm one of the only people who haven't died of camp cancer, ended up with lupus, or um, had thyroids burnt out, or severe thyroid problems. Uh, so not a great investment, but um, mm -hmm. a lot of my family lived in Cheektowaga and Tondawanda. Really? Yeah. And then my parents, Very close to Orchard Park. Very close. And then my parents, after Love Canal, moved to Arizona. And so I think that the thing that struck me most with this whole entire privilege is for, I, I come from, you know, my mom and dad, I, I think, okay, so first of all, I think you have to unpack shame because um, there's like weird shame around Why? it. Well, there shouldn't be, but there is. I'm, like, not, I'm not ashamed. I, and neither am I, and but I, I come from a family for whatever reason huh. it, that it's not talked like money. Money's not talked about. Okay. So I have, I come from a poor family, um, like lower middle class, got lucky. Um, my dad bought a home that was like in an okay neighborhood, probably middle class instead of lower middle class at the mm -hmm. time. Um, because it was, what is it called when they're um, like the, the person buys it? 
and it's taken away. Foreclosure. For, foreclosure. So we had a foreclosed home that needed a lot of work. We were so we were that house on the neighbor in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad was a truck driver um, at some points, an entrepreneur um, trying to just get by, like food, clothes, and even um, housing were always like didn't know if we were going to lose our home, more hand-me-downs, um, couldn't take things from the fridge growing up without asking first because it might not be the time to go back to the store next, and mm-hmm. I had three younger siblings. Um, and so, like, I, at first, when talking about white privilege, identified with um, being poor, not having enough, uh, like, the struggles, the struggle's real, like, uh, so I didn't really understand how to differentiate between being somebody, uh, struggling with basic needs, um, and then being somebody white struggling with basic needs. And what I've learned through this, like, unfolding process for myself is that, well, my dad still was able to get a home, A, and B... Like, that home provided loans that, like, got them through, which got us a house, like, kept us in a house, which kept me stable, which, like, so there's, like, this whole unfolding. Um, Well, that's the point, that home ownership in America is key to wealth. Most of us, most of my, my net worth is the equity in my house, which is appreciated since I bought it because it's here the Bay Area, Lucky. where, where <laughs> home prices have gone up. Um, so my family worked hard. Mm-hmm. Your family worked hard. Yeah, right? they worked hard. Right? And, well, so did a lot of other families. That's right. right. A lot of families worked hard. That's right. A lot of families of color worked hard. That's right. right? It, so this argument that, well, we worked hard mm-hmm. uh, presupposes that other people didn't work hard, which is kind of the the mythology that we're brought up with, I was brought up right. with, we get ahead because we're smarter and we work harder. And people who don't get ahead is because they're not so smart and they didn't work as hard. Uh, yeah. What if that's not true? I would say that's not it's true. Not true. It's I would not say true. that, that uh, throughout history, people have worked hard. Yeah. So this idea of having a house, um, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you were, if, if uh, as is true of a lot of my clients, a lot of my students, their parents were able to buy, or sometimes grandparents in this case, That's right. uh, were able to buy uh, houses in the suburbs as they were created, like in places like Pleasant Hill, where mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy University is, right. incorporated in 1961, were, were given very favorable loans mm-hmm. uh, and, and houses with uh, low down payment, low monthly payments, and uh, those houses appreciated greatly. Houses that people might have bought for 25000 are now worth... Oh, a uh, million. Um, could be a million. Yeah, right? a lot of them. Uh, uh, so, as you were saying, that that money can be used uh, to borrow money. That's right. To finance the children's education. Or whatever, just get by, right? I mean... It's the starting point for the next generation. Something, that's right. right. Uh, so... Um, well, and... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, starting point for the next generation. Yes, the next generation starts at a point where uh, this wealth has been accumulated. The wealth has actually been given 
by the ability to buy a home at this key point in history. As I said, when uh, wages for working people were relatively high, mm -hmm. uh, when the U.S. economy was strong, when actually the difference in wealth between the, the, the poor working people and the wealthy was small, much smaller than it is now. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, People like your father, my father, your grandfather probably, the same generation as my father, mm -hmm. uh, were able to, uh, to own homes. Well, and that's another thing that I had to unpack from your class when we talked about this. So my grandfather was from Italy off the boat, and he wasn't treated so kindly. Right. Um, Italians weren't white at the time. They weren't white at the time. But but some at some point, there was a turning point yes. where his European... Heritage right. did provide some um, privilege uh, yes. because he did end up owning a home and he did end up being a pretty successful like. Right. Uh, yeah. For for Italians and a lot of Southern and Eastern Europeans, they faced heavy discrimination. Right. Uh, and worked low wage jobs when coming to the country. Many, not all. Yeah, my uh, um, my grandfather. Uh, and really with. Second World War, the need mm -hmm. for soldiers, mm -hmm. the need for labor. Um, after the war, I mean, with uh, the construction industry, the highway constructions, because not only did um, the post-war funding of the suburbs create all these houses, mm -hmm. people needed roads. That's right. Uh, so the government also spent lots of money on highway construction. Mm -hmm. uh, Many of the firms were Italian-owned. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I sometimes joke that Italians became white at that point. Oh, became interesting. Became acceptable, yeah. became um, part of the white middle class. Right. Um, and well, and I think um, going back on shame, I think that that's another place that I have, like, I had to unpack my shame. So, like, being Italian, like, having my, my grandfather, my living grandfather, be Italian, be treated a certain way, like... And then he really based his um, acceptance off of his hard work. Mm -hmm. And he also, I also was raised with a lot of racism. So, of course. So then there was like that kind of like where I was brought up and that it was like him, his work ethic, and the other. Right. And so I really had to unpack like the enmeshment of like his view mm -hmm. um, and how it was hindering my ability to see as a white person in the world right. and then then start like from that baseline to be able to even talk about my white privilege because I had to unpack all of that. Right. Well, where I grew up, what would now be considered racial slurs were the only words used to describe people of color. Yeah. Uh, Italians too. Yeah. Polish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were very aware of the various European ethnicities still right. uh, in the 50s and early 60s. But that more and more started to fade. Mm -hmm. um, so for those who didn't have the option of using this kind of financing to buy a house, or maybe rented, or maybe lived in projects, you don't gain any equity from that. No. Right? You don't acquire wealth mm -hmm. from renting. And you don't acquire wealth even if you own a home in areas of a city where 
property values do not appreciate. That's right. Right. So in uh, fact, maybe go down, right? Because of the gent- like the gentrification that's happening. So I work in Antioch, um, and Antioch used to be a suburb with these beautiful homes. Uh, and at some point, Antioch was like a nice suburb, and then gentrification happened with Oakland, and all these people have been pushed uh, to Antioch, and now the property values are decreasing. And um, I work in schools that are primarily kids of color, and um, I am privileged enough to live in a small in-law in a very privileged neighborhood, and my son is the age of a lot of the kids that I'm working with in these other areas, the surrounding areas, and to see what's acceptable uh, education-wise, how even the... I, I'm appalled. I go to one particular school that the outside of the school is gated and you have to be buzzed in. We're talking about a middle school, buzzed in. There's no windows down the corridor. Um, the windows in the classrooms don't open and they're facing like a, a courtyard with nothing but cement. And it, it feels like a mini prison, to be honest. It feels like a mini prison. And I just get so upset that like there's not an option or opportunity for something better and well that's related to the property values declining because property values decline funding for the schools declines as well that's right as businesses move out of an area the tax base shrinks that's right and there's uh there's less money for services of any sort well and and it, it feels like some type of like conditioning too like i mean to feel like you're in a mini prison and like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something about that that just makes me very disheartened. And then I don't really understand why. And I'm still like struggling with this myself. Like, why does only certain schools have like these beautiful like parks in them? And why isn't it distributed more evenly? And why is it that some of these kids do not have even books? Like, um, books. Like, books are an issue in some of the schools that I'm working with. Like, and I think that people wouldn't believe it unless you go. And then something about, I'm sorry, something about uh, the parents that I work with in the privileged areas, because I live in a privileged area, um, the availability that the moms have to, like, help at schools. Like I literally at my son's kindergarten and first grade class had to be on a waiting list to help, waiting list. And at the schools I work with with my clients, um, just so under-resourced, like parents don't even come in because there's like some generational trauma there. And I kind of want to bring in that piece at some point too, the, sure. the generational trauma. Okay. Finish about yes, my please, story, though. Please, I'm sorry. Um, That's all right. Um, <laughs> I'm on a tangent. <laughs> uh, no, it's not a tangent. It's all, all related. It, it but is. yes, schools are different because the resources are different in different communities. Um, wealthier neighborhoods not only have a larger property tax base, they also have more ability for the families to contribute money. Uh, schools do lots of fundraisers. Um, uh, so we can get back to, to that. But that's clearly related to this phenomenon of 
segregation by geography. Mm -hmm. right? So we yeah. don't have we don't have laws that say you can't live here and, uh, or here, but we have geography uh, historically that because certain groups were given access to financial resources and therefore uh, loans, therefore property, therefore uh, accumulated wealth, um, they still have that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the lending practices in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s racialized the country in ways that no one could have really anticipated. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they also were able to do for that generation, so um, sometimes people are shocked to hear that I went to public school from kindergarten through graduate school for free. What? Yeah, essentially for free. Uh, the public schools were well-funded yeah. in this uh, uh, all-white area. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the state of New York instituted around this time, because so many of us, basically white middle-class kids, were growing up. Uh, and at the time, there was this anxiety about being surpassed by the Soviet Union, so all this funding went into public education, um, the State University of New York college system uh, here in California, too. So I was able to go get my bachelor's degree uh, at one of the st state universities in New York, my master's degree at one of the state universities here in California. You don't have debt? Not, not, a, not a dime. Right. So when people sometimes say, well, how can... Uh, how could we afford free public education? Uh, what country could do that? The answer is this country. We did. Right, because this is something that was available for a period of time, for about um, sometime in the mid-60s through the 80s um, when policy started to change. Uh, but public schools in wealthier areas were very good. Uh, the public universities were excellent, I think. I think I got a great education all for free. Why did we stop that? Um, well, because the tax code started to change. Mm -hmm. In uh, California, there was Proposition 13, which reduced the amount of money available. Um, there was uh, basically an idea that the wealthy should pay less in taxes. Mm -hmm. People don't really think of this, but in the uh, 50s, the wealthy people paid very high tax rates. Sometimes we think that we pay tax rates now that are high, mm -hmm. uh, but actually in the 50s, tax rates on uh, high earners, on the wealthy, were much higher than they are now. Mm -hmm. So there was really quite sufficient funding for things like public education. Some of that started... I believe, during wartime when the war effort had to be funded mm. <clears throat> and was continued after the war. Mm. So um, most people aren't aware that tax rates were so much higher for the wealthy in the past, and they've been going down, uh, I think, starting in the 80s. So, oh, like under Reagan? Yeah. Oh. That was part of the, the, the philosophy to yeah, yeah. Uh, cut taxes on the wealthy, therefore... They would be job creators and mm -hmm. 
that would boost the economy. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, though, that did happen was that there was less money available for things like state universities and colleges um, and public education in general. So Yeah, I'll be in debt forever. I mean, I, I'm pretty much... I pretty much know I signed up to have my debt until I die. Okay. I'm being Sorry. serious. Sorry to hear that. Um, <laughs> well, um, working in nonprofit, right? right? I mean, like, it's going to be forever. <laughs> uh, and that's a, a kind of privilege. It, and, and most of the people I went to school with were white kids from suburban areas. Mm -hmm. um, Long Island, lots of, lots of people from Long Island mm -hmm. went to the state universities and mm -hmm. other parts of New York State. So, um, uh, so then I, um, I started my career. Yeah. I uh, was out of college. I needed a job. I was a young white man. At the time, I was uh, thicker up here and thinner <laughs> down here, you know, so that, uh, um, yeah, and, and one field that actually has a strong presence for women is the field of mental health. That's true. Um, so I think that I looked like a good person to hire. I was immediately trusted. I got jobs right away mm -hmm. in community mental health. I got promoted. Mm. Not that I wasn't good, but I think that the fact that I was white and male uh, gave me a lot of discrimination in favor of. Right. Um, I, I, was a, I was seen as competent immediately. No one distrusted me, even though they probably should have. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> exactly the most uh, trustworthy person to start with. I made mm. a lot of errors and uh, bad judgment calls along the way, but somehow those were forgiven. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, so I did well in the field, got my license, started my practice here. Uh, 1984 is when I moved into this office suite. And I decided I would really focus on working with men so that pretty much, not all, but a whole lot of my clients are um, professional white men. Mm-hmm. They see me and they say, oh, this guy looks like he should be my therapist. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. uh, where I think if I were a woman, if I were a woman of color especially, uh, they wouldn't think that so immediately. So I think that the fact that I'm white and male has made it much easier for me to build my practice. Yeah. Because I look like what people expect their therapist to look like. That's right. Um, so, and I'm, I'm trusted pretty immediately. I'm not saying I'm not really good as a therapist. I think I am. But I think that I get an advantage. Right. Well, you're owning your privilege. Right. Right. And I have a job at a university. Yeah. A full professor. Yeah. With only a master's degree. Very rare these days. And he's a great professor. Um, <laughs> how did I get the job? Someone offered it yeah. to me in this neighborhood at a coffee shop. Oh, like nepotism-ish? Sort of. He was yeah. uh, someone, uh, another white man that I knew. I approached him at a presentation and struck up a relationship with him. He has an office in this neighborhood. Yeah. Very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, we meet for coffee sometimes. So yeah. I was talking to him on the phone once, and I said, 
uh, he was talking about this work he was doing at John F. Kennedy University. I said, wow, that sounds really cool. I'd like to do that. Yeah. And a few days later, I was sitting out here in this neighborhood. He walked by and said, hey, I found a job for you. Yeah. And he gave me the phone number, uh, the name of the person. I, With we, only a master's. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's actually a thing. Right. Yeah. Well, at the time, that was that was a while ago. That was still pretty acceptable. Yeah. Um, kind of a thing now. It's it's now it, the parameters have changed. But yeah. at the time, that was quite acceptable. Mm-hmm. So I went to the interview. I was the only candidate. I was interviewed by a very nice white woman who offered me the job right, uh, right away. Right. Um, based on the word of this other colleague of ours. Right. Um, and a lot of the way that privilege works is who you know. That's right. Like if the people you know have access to jobs, mm-hmm. have access to various uh, resources, yeah. connections yeah. Of, of, of any sort, that's how privilege is transmitted. Mm-hmm. They used to say that privilege is inheriting your father's Rolodex. Mm. Um, mm. No one knows what a Rolodex is anymore. I do. Uh, but <laughs> uh, right now it would be uh, uh, his uh, email connections or mm-hmm. something. But basically, you inherit the connections uh, of your family. Now, I didn't have that. I didn't have uh, connections from my family, but I was able to establish connections much more easily based on being white and being male. Yeah. And... Um, Therefore, knowing other people. If all the people you know are poor, if all the people you know are lacking in resources, they can't really give you the hookup, so to speak, with people who have access to jobs and other resources. Right. So I um, got my job at the university that way. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes called a good old boy network or a good old boy and girl network. It really is based on who you know and who you're connected with. Well, and that was where the beginning of my eyes like started opening. I worked um, at a commercial real estate firm for a second. Right. And very few women mm-hmm. in, with their license doing things on the floor, like the brokerage floor. It was mainly men. Right. And it was mainly white men. Right. And it was mainly white men who went to the same college Right. Or related, right? Like, and 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 to break into that whole system was it was crazy, and it was it, it was nuts. And that was the first time I finally like encountered what it meant to like not go to the right college, not live in the right neighborhood, not know the right names, right. even though I knew I was capable of doing what all those white men were doing. And, um, yeah, and I didn't have the words at that point. I just felt, uh, like it was like unjust in some way. Uh, and that was like my, and I was early twenties. So, Mm -hmm. um, that was like, or mid twenties, I think mid twenties. So that was like my first like coming to like this thing that you speak of. That's like so much that impacts people of color so much more and then women of color so much more right. that we're just not, we just need to start talking about it and owning our privilege. And that's why I respect you so much. And like, I appreciate the class that you held because like you own your privilege and you're talking about it. And, and, 
in a way that's like not shameful or not like like going into the trauma or like I don't know it's weird like some people will do this thing where they're like I don't want to feel bad about being white I don't even know what that is Mm. um and I'm not yet skilled enough to combat those type of defenses Uh, I'm just like okay well I don't want you to feel bad for being white that's not what I'm talking about and I feel like having these type of conversations and like being around somebody who can own it in this way uh helps me own my whiteness and um my privilege in a way that has helped like you've helped me unpack a lot of things around it and I want to advocate more and I want to be part of this conversation more because I think it's really important to uh help equality you know and, oh, and that's what I wanted to say. Do you have more of your story? Oh, I have more, but I don't think I want to tell it right now. Okay, so we'll do that in another podcast. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> oh, it's not to be talked. It's not, it's not to be spoken. No, um, there's something about through the trauma lens like that I've been like playing around with. So if the macro and the micro kind of reflect one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this trauma work that I've done for the micro is about needing to go through the process of trauma, needs to go through the process of fight, flight, and freeze in order mm-hmm. to like basically be integrated. Uh, then that would be true systematically for generational trauma. Right. And... Um, I think that there's something, you see that little bug? <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought you were just being telling <laughs> Hey, I am that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that there's something about that that like needs to be held in a container. So for people who are, who are willing to look at their privilege and we're in that space, then we also need to make the container bigger to hold the space of the trauma that needs to go through these cycles right. in order to come to some type of integration. And that means being able to hold the anger and the grief and all of that stuff that like, I think that a lot of people shy away from, like it's too much or they take personal or I'm not really sure, but I wonder like if you have any thoughts about that. Well, for me, it's just about telling the truth and about my own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I don't claim to have some expertise on other people's experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of intergenerational trauma, I recommend that everybody read uh, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Oh, I loved that book. Um, uh, by Joy DeGruy. She's uh, amazing. So it really. I think covers very important ground about what's happened in America, the trauma suffered by African Americans. She starts with a question: was in uh, graduate school, right? you know, mostly white graduate program, as most of them are. And she raises her hand and says to her professor, "Do you think that uh, slaves suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder?" Um, that was the question. 
she asked. And uh, they said, well, we can't answer that. <coughs> so she started looking at the symptoms of post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. and um, started noticing those things seemed to show up generation after generation. Yeah. So she made what is really a very obvious uh, deduction that, of course, people treated that way, a good percentage of them would suffer post-traumatic stress. And then that generation would raise the next generation. So every generation was then being raised by someone who was traumatized. That's right. So that's what she means by um, intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. It gets passed down because not only uh, did a lot of the daily traumas continue because even though, yes, slavery ended, um, uh, the conditions were still quite terrible uh, for black folks through most of our history yeah. so that there were still daily experiences of trauma mm -hmm. and there was the trauma that was passed down. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're interested in that, uh, she's really the person I consider an expert on it. That's right. Certainly not myself. Um, but that's a really good book to read. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a great book called The Warmth of Other Suns mm -hmm. by uh, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. I didn't read this one. Uh, which is about the migration patterns of African Americans from the South to the North and to the West. Mm. Uh, and it's really, it's a, it's a great read. She's a historian, so there's a lot of data in it, but it's also very personal. Mm -hmm. So she tells the story of three different people mm -hmm. who, who migrated. So it's very, mm -hmm. very personal at the same time. Oh, I feel like we read... factual. Did we read inserts from that? No. No. Because I think I, I, at that point, was assigning post-traumatic uh, post slave syndrome instead. Mm -hmm. It's only an 11-week class, and I can't yeah. have you read everything And we read Tim like Wise. You. Tim Wise is awesome. Right. Um, um, yeah, like, so, so, like, if you were to give a one little gem me right now about moving forward like do you think you would sum it up to, into like what you just had said about just owning your story yeah like, um, to me it's like to be an activist to like be able to like continue to have this dialogue to be able to like start breaking down the barriers to mm -hmm. be able to like start um well, I think the key is uh, for white people to talk to other white people about it. A lot of times when people take the class, they think, oh, my God, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? I have to go help someone. I think the people who really need our help, uh, as, as you've been talking about. I need help. With, uh, uh, I, no, I need help. I, <laughs> no, I need help with having this conversation with white people. I, I'm being serious. Remember, I went, uh, I, I had his class. And I was less skilled, and I was going through my own process. And remember, I had my friends bring me to Cabo, and I was reading the book that he talked about, about post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I was saying how I wanted to work in the prisons. And there was um, a few of the ladies uh, made some comments that were kind of, I didn't think so great. They weren't so PC. They weren't horrible, but, like, I was in a very... Um, stimulated spot around it and uh, I'm not friends with them anymore 
And so I've gotten better. Like, I've gotten better and I'm able to listen, but I still feel, uh, I get so frustrated when people can't can't see, I guess, like yeah. at all. Like, it's just like. I think this is one of the most difficult conversations to have. And, I, and I, how I, do you I, stay regulated is what I'm saying. Like, how are you, like, when you're having these conversations, like, like how, like, what is the little nugget in there so I can go forward having the harder conversations with more people without being afraid to have them, without, well, like... I would say you're going to be afraid. Oh, okay. Uh, so you are afraid of having them. Of course. Oh. Uh, I oh. get afraid, I get frustrated, I have all the same emotions that you would have or anyone else would have. Mm-hmm. I just think to persevere, to keep having the conversations... Mm-hmm. I mean, I have uh, people in my family mm-hmm. uh, who I have an uncle who sends me uh, 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 those group emails about how horrible Muslims are. Mm. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I write back to him, mm. and. Uh, so, so like it's just, it's, it's just to persevere. Okay, and I, I like that, and I dig that, and I'm trying to do that. Like, that's what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, like, still here doing this, like, talking about it, even though I've been uncomfortable. Uh, but I do it kind of, like, in a safer, I feel like definitely more safer, contained ways. Um, and what do you do when you run up against, like, the com- the comments that, like, you don't really know how to answer? Like, um do you double back and say, like, I just don't know the answer to that. Let me get back. Like, what do you say? Because I can't answer, like, sometimes these questions. Right. Well, some of it, though, still is a matter of privilege. Right. I have these conversations a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you know, I have them quite frequently with students who are graduate students who are required to take my class. <laughs> Right. So they disagree. They sometimes write terrible things in their course evaluations about me. Um, But uh, I'm in a position of privilege and power where they have to listen to me. Right. Right. Uh, As a therapist, I don't necessarily lecture about this to my clients, but I will bring it up. I use narrative therapy techniques to Mm -hmm. question people's opinions about things, their stories about things mm-hmm. in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a lot of the people I associate with socially uh, have similar ideas to me, uh, so that's right. reassuring. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I do get involved in conversations. I've, I used to host discussion groups at my house where I would invite people and invite people to invite other people and we would have discussions about these topics. Mm-hmm. It would get heated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, it's hard to have these discussions with white people. A lot of times white people stop coming to my house, <laughs> stop coming to my parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I don't have any answer as to how to have the conversation. Yeah. It's a very difficult conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I just keep trying to have it, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it works out better than others. Apparently, you and I had the conversation, and it was useful to you. Yeah, it was totally right? useful. Other people have the conversation and hate me and write me off. Right. Which is, that's fine if right. that happens. Right. So uh, it's not going to 
reach everyone. I, mm-hmm. I try to alienate fewer people each time. <laughs> I like this model. <laughs> I, like, I like this. And that's becoming older and wiser, right? Uh, well, right, at, no, le- at least uh, older. Yeah. <laughs> and you're wearing a profession where people often mistake age for wisdom. So we're, we're lucky in that way. Yes, that's you're right. You're right. You're right. That's really funny. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. And thank you for everybody who tuned in or who will listen to this. And if you could kindly share um, to help me get the word out. And continue to uh, support me through Coleology. You can find me on all of the social media. And my website's up. Thanks, Paul Montoya, for helping me with that. Um, Coleology.weebly.weebly.com. Free website with free podcasts. Uh, Thank you so much. Take care and have a great night and a nice, what is today? Friday. Weekend. Have a nice weekend. Take care.